Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Welcome to the Belisario College of Com Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Katie DeFiori. For this episode, I spoke with David Frum. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic and the author of Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. He came and spoke in the Katz Law Building this semester about what he calls the guardrails of democracy. Now, just a heads up for this episode, the audio quality is not great. David had a long day of talks and presentations to give, so I ended up having only 10 minutes to interview him in the lobby of his hotel. So be prepared to hear some elevator noises, some wrestling, and things of that nature. Nevertheless, David and I had a great conversation about the effects he believes Trump has had on our democracy. He also provides some advice for communications students entering this political climate. My name is David Fromm. As you said, I'm an editor, senior editor at The Atlantic. Despite that title, what I mostly do there is write. Uh, I've been involved with The Atlantic since 2014. Um, before that, I've done a lot of different do- jobs in journalism. I've written nine books. Uh, I worked as a speechwriter for the George W. Bush administration. And I-, I don't know that passionate is the right word, but what I'm um, intellectually absorbed in is um, American history, world history, and applying that perspective to the problems of the present day. Cool. So the theme of your talk today was the guardrails of democracy. Yes. Could you, uh, maybe for listeners who were not there, explain what the guardrails are? Well, much of the American system of government was built precisely with a view to exclude people like Donald Trump from positions of high office. Um, The authors of the Constitution, the founders of the Republic, they had imagined people like Trump. And they knew they existed and they were worried about them. And so they built a set of constitutional rules to exclude them. And over the 220 or so years since the founding of the Republic, those foundational rules have been added to with a series of customs and habits and norms to make sure that a person like this could not be president. And yet a person like this precisely as president. So the question that I've been thinking a lot about over the past few years, it's a big question in the book, is how could that have happened? What went wrong that made this possible? Mm. And what have you come up with to answer that question? That a lot of these guardrails, as I call them, are broken. Um, that Trump pierced through them. Um, the expectation that a president should be a person of knowledge. The expectation that a president should be a person of character. The expectation that a president should seek to represent the whole of the country, not just a part of it. Uh, the expectation that a president should be a patriot. The, no, these aren't exactly written down anywhere. They're not laws. They're just practices. But Trump overthrew them. And now we have to think about how do we make a new kind of stable country? How do we rebuild guardrails knowing that it's possible for something like this to happen? That's interesting. So would you say you put these... I think about this a lot too as well as how people who might have voted for Trump might have been saying, well, at least he fits my conservative viewpoints. Would you say that you're putting, I guess, the character of the person as more important than maybe his opinions on different... But the remarkable thing about Donald Trump in the campaign of 2016 was he made clear he had no use for or understanding of conservative politics. Um, that it wasn't that people said, well, you know, he, 
may, okay, maybe he leads this uh, unfortunate life, but at least you know he's good on my issues. Donald Trump doesn't care about any issue. Uh, there's a spectacular example of this in the 2016, when he, 2016 campaign when he was asked the first time about abortion. Uh, the pro-life cause, which is a very sophisticated and developed cause, has a whole series of ways of talking about abortion. And it was pretty plain that Donald Trump had just got the briefing on this the night before. Mm. And then he bungled it. And he kept saying that, that one, of, so one of the fundamental things, if you're a pro-life politician, if you get the question, should women who have abortions go to prison? Because it's murder, right? The answer is absolutely not. That the offender here is the doctor who performs the abortion, and the woman who receives the abortion is herself also a victim, not a perpetrator. That's just like pro-life politics 101. If you don't know that, you have to go back to running for you know candidate school for your job in the state assembly. Right. So Donald Trump's yeah, the woman has to go to prison. Like it's just. <laughs> He didn't learn the lines. He didn't know anything. And it was a show, not only of ignorance, but of total disrespect. He was not interested enough in the issue to learn what the lines were. So as a writer, as someone in the journalism industry, how do you believe Trump's presidency is changing what it means to be a journalist and what our jobs look like? Well, he's putting pressure to change it in ways that are uh, are pretty bad. Uh, Marty Baron, the managing editor of the Washington Post, has has a great line. They said, we don't go to war, we go to work. But Trump has made the media the story. I mean, he interprets any accurate but irritating story as an, a personal attack and um, calls it a lie or a fake when, of course, it's true. And what he has also done along the way is empowered every tin pot dictator around the planet uh, to put journalists actively in prison and to, say, to use his, well, the President of the United States says if you don't like the news, it's fake news, and that the journalists who do it are enemies of the people. So far, thank God, in the United States, enemies of the people is just hot air. But in Turkey, in the Philippines, uh, in India, um, those kinds of accusations get people dead. And that's why normal presidents don't use that kind of language. I don't think any president has ever enjoyed their media coverage. Uh, John F. Kennedy had a funny line. This is a reference that's before your time. There's, there used to be a cigarette ad that said, are you smoking more and enjoying it less? And John F. Kennedy was asked shortly after he became president in a press conference what he thought of the media coverage. And he said, I find I'm reading the news more and enjoying it less. <laughs> but he also understood, as all presidents do, a free press is a crucial national institution. The media make mistakes. They're sometimes unfair. They're sometimes harsh. But if you're president, you got the big plane, you got the big car, you have to put up a little unfairness, and you have confidence that over time, history will do justice to you. And uh, so John Kennedy didn't like the press he got in 1961, but you know we remember him with respect to this day. So what would be your, I guess, advice to any student journalists who, might, who are entering this political madness right now? Well, my advice to student journalists would be to understand that you have entered, chosen this work at a time when the career path is probably in more flux than at any time since the invention of the printing press. When I graduated from college in 1982, a journalism career went typically something like this. You would graduate from college and you get a job on a small town paper where you'd cover the school board and local politics. And you do that for a year or two. And if you did a good job, doing that, your editor would sort of forward you along to a metropolitan paper where you would then do the same kind of thing. And if you did a good job there, you would rise through the ranks, maybe someday become a foreign correspondent, maybe get the Washington Bureau. Um, and it, there was a career path 
which were finished with a lot of professional recognition and um, a, a pension at the end of it. Okay, so none of that exists anymore. There's no more career path because the institutions that you start work at probably won't exist, never mind by the time you retire, but by the time you're 30. Right. Uh, so what you need to understand is that you're choosing a profession but not a career. So it, there are more rewards and there are some pretty interesting rewards, but there's no path. If what you're looking for is a predictable life, journalism is not for you. This is something I wanted to touch on for sure. I, I read your article in The Atlantic about your thoughts on Kavanaugh and the sexual assault allegations he'll be facing tomorrow. Um, you said that one of the things that you said in that article that stood out to me was that um, the Senate Judiciary Committee, they're the wrong men to be making the decision at the wrong time. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So we have a president who is a confessed sexual assault, who has confessed that it's his practice to grab unwilling women and force his affections, if that's what you want to call them, on them. And every person who serves in the majority of that committee has accepted this president as a leader of the country. So those 11 men on the Judiciary Committee, on the Republican side, are, have already made a statement about their beliefs that make, make make you wonder, well, how can they judge this? Because even if it's true, and, I don't, and I'm not saying it is, we don't know, but even if it's true, they're saying it's, it's not important. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we've, I hope we, and when I say we, I mean the male half the population because the women knew it already, we've learned from the past two plus years of the Me Too movement is there's a lot more of this going on than any of us like to admit to ourselves. And it's a trial that our wives, our sisters, our daughters, our mothers, our grandmothers have all gone through. And, and for a long time, we've pretty easily said, we being the male half of the population, um, well, that's the way of the world. And right now we're having a national debate, a global debate of, well, it has been the way of the world. Does it have to be the way of the world forever? I don't know what Kavanaugh did. I'm not going to assess the facts. And I'm not even saying that if you behave like a non-criminal jerk at age 17, that that means that for the rest of your life you have to be the person you were at 17. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that when, when Donald Trump at his press conference on the day you and I are speaking said, after the attacks on, Donald, uh, on Kavanaugh, he liked him more, uh, he is saying something that puts every Republican on that committee in an awkward position. After these allegations, you should be more worried, not less worried. So you started your talk tonight talking about how you came across like all these updates that are happening. In the, in the <laughs> My media. Monday, yeah. yeah. It's insane how many things are happening and then all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore, something else matters more. Right. That just seems to be the news cycle nowadays. And yes. What we have to deal with as journalists. Do you think that's as that's an effect of the Trump presidency? Is that an effect of the fact that we're moving into the social media no, that's age? The, or that, that's how do the, we deal with it? That's the Trump presidency. Look, every presidency before Donald, since the rise of cable news, since we had the 24-hour news cycle, uh, the way it was for Clinton, the way it was for Bush, the way it was for Obama, um, was the, pres the, the senior staff of the presidency would meet at the beginning of the day, and they would discuss what are we trying to accomplish today. Now, presidencies have long-term goals. You know, we're trying to win the war in Afghanistan or grow the economy or whatever. But every day, you've got a message of the day. You know, today we're trying to pass, you know, our Veterans Affairs Reorganization Bill. And 
you can't control the message flow of the day. Things may happen. There may be an earthquake somewhere that steps on your message. But if that's the White House message, everybody that day is talking about the Veterans Affairs reorganization. You do not step on your own message. Um, and you work as a team to make sure that, well, everyone we have authority over is talking about Veterans Affairs reorganization. And if there's this earthquake and we're you know, kicked out of the first place, OK, but at least we've done our bit. What is unique about this administration is they don't do any of that. They have no plan. Every day, it just sort of happens. And the president wanders downstairs at 10.30 or 11, and he's upset by something he sees on TV, and then he goes off. And so they, they have all, the staff have all decided at 7 a.m., today is Veterans Affairs Reorganization today, and, today, and the president says, no, today's the day where I'm going to defend the Confederate flag, or whatever he, whatever he has made up his mind to do. So there's never been anything like this. You know, I told a story earlier today about how one, one of my sort of, before I went to work for the Bush administration, one of my educations in um, how the White House works was I used to have the same preschool drop-off time as President Clinton's um, chief speechwriter. And so every day we would have a few minutes. I mean, he was just a social acquaintance, but uh, I'd, um, we would have a few minutes. We were dropping off our children at preschool. And we'd talk. And one thing I learned from him is White Houses are pretty similar places. And if you pluck somebody from the Clinton White House, blindfolded them, and put them in a time machine and drop them in the Bush White House, there would be important differences. Uh, but the rhythm of work would be awfully familiar. Um, and I, th I assume that was true in the Obama White House, that the rhythm of work in the Obama White House was awfully familiar. Uh, the Trump White House, of course, is its own thing, its own place, completely unlike any White House we've ever seen before. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.